The war in Ukraine is entering a high-stakes phase, what everyone's been calling the spring counteroffensive. President Volodymyr Zelensky wants planes and weapons from the United States badly. But about a month ago, he told the U.S., this counteroffensive is going to happen regardless of whether Ukraine gets its American planes and weapons. Frankly speaking, it would help us a lot. But we also understand that we can't drag the counteroffensive out which is why we'll start before we receive F-16s or other models. The U.S. came around late last month. Ukraine will get F-16s. And then this week, someone attacked Moscow, not with planes, but with drones. These are the first hits of this scale to Russia's capital since the war started. And a day later, yesterday, someone droned a big oil refinery in southern Russia. Ukraine denies everything, but for analysts and reporters covering this war, it seems like this may be the moment when Ukraine strikes back. It's Today Explained. Support for Today Explained comes from Vanta. Vanta knows that when it comes to ensuring that your company has top-notch security, things can get very complicated. Now you can assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance with a single platform, and that platform is... Vanta. Vanta can help you continuously monitor compliance alongside reporting and tracking risk, plus quickly complete security questionnaires with Vanta AI. According to Vanta, thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection, unify risk management, and streamline security reviews. You can learn more by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com explained. That's V-A-N-T-A dot explained. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Today, today explain. Developing news this morning, Russia is reporting that it was struck by drones this morning. Moscow's mayor took to social media to say a drone attack in the Russian capital city caused, quote, insignificant damage to several buildings. So on Tuesday morning, a lot of Russians woke up to the sounds of explosions. Most of them were near Moscow, which is obviously the capital of Russia. And this was a pretty unprecedented attack because residents of Russia capital experienced kind of direct consequences of the war in Ukraine um, for the very first time. Mary Lushina is a foreign correspondent covering this war for The Washington Post. I asked Mary the million-ruble question, who did the drone strikes? So there are two theories. It was either Ukraine or um, Russian actors inside the country who are against 
Vladimir Putin against this war in Ukraine and kind of in support of um, Ukraine. Um, Ukraine itself like deny that they had any involvement in this, um, but they're kind of being very deliberate in never taking responsibility for anything that happens inside Russian territory because there is tension, for example, with the United States because the U.S. doesn't want Ukraine to um, hit deep inside Russia because that they fear that might anger Vladimir Putin even more. And they also ask them not to use any weapons that were provided by the West to carry out these attacks. We have neither encouraged nor enabled uh, the Ukrainians to uh, strike inside of Russia. Uh, but the important thing is to understand what Ukrainians are living through every day with the ongoing Russian aggression against their country and our determination to make sure that they have um, in their hands, along with many other partners around the world, the uh, equipment that they need to defend themselves, to defend their territory, uh, to defend their freedom. Who or what was being targeted? It's difficult to say what exactly they were targeting because there were obviously some military um, sites near Moscow that could be a very much a legitimate target. We don't know why they hit the residential buildings because they could be intercepted by Russian anti-air defense systems and that resulted them you know, in dropping in residential areas before they reached their destination. But what we do know that a lot of the drones were spotted near areas where the Russian elite lives and resides, where the Russian officials Russian celebrities, the high and mighty. Most prestigious neighborhood where Vladimir Putin lives, where basically most of his cabinet lives. This is the place where um, Russia's richest men have their summer houses and all-year mansions. There's a Rublyovka highway where there's a lot of gated communities, a lot of rich people live there, um, and it should be very well protected. But it's, you know, as we've seen now, it's quite difficult to protect the city from smaller targets. You know, I've talked to, you know, many <laughs> analysts over the months because this is not the first attack, drone attack that happened inside Russia, but essentially they say it is a very intricate thing to protect a city from targets such as drones because they're quite small. Um, some of these systems in Moscow, they have kind of their kind of Cold War style because they are catered to protecting against bombs and like jet bombers and larger things. And it's difficult for them to kind of readjust the whole system to protect against drones. And also we don't know exactly how much systems are still available to be inside Russia because they obviously have to protect the front line. But again, it, there's still a possibility that those were um, Ukrainian-made drones. We again, don't exactly know. How are Russians responding? And let's start with the top Russian. What has Vladimir Putin said about these attacks? Uh, he's essentially dismissed them and said that the defense systems have worked adequately. Uh, though he did say that there is work to be done and that um, the authorities are going to bolster mo Moscow defenses. The Moscow air defense system worked satisfactorily. However, there is still work to be done to make it better. And, you know, again, we know that they have been doing that so far and it appears to be that it hasn't been enough. But I think he's whole tone was, you know, Ukraine is provoking Russia. Kyiv chose the path of intimidation of Russian citizens and attacks on residential buildings. It is a clear sign of terrorist activity. He said they're provoking Russia to respond with mere action. And we do know Russia has been targeting Kyiv and other Ukrainian cities, you know, so many times in recent weeks. His whole idea is to tone it down and make sure the Russians aren't alarmed. Um, I think it was interesting that he even came out and said that because a couple of hours before his kind of video address that was on national TV, his 
Chinese press secretary said that Putin has no specific plans to address the nation about this. And, you know, a couple hours later, he did. And that was interesting because we haven't heard much from Putin recently, especially when it comes to any specific setbacks the Russian military has experienced or specific attacks. He was mostly giving kind of more vague and kind of wide statements about why Russia is still fighting in Ukraine and tried to kind of band the nation together. So that was quite interesting. And we know that the Russian kind of state TV propaganda has been also echoing the same message, trying to calm people down and say, like, look, this was expected because there was an attack on the Kremlin a couple of weeks ago. And the whole idea is there, look, don't be alarmed. But I think people are, you know, alarmed to a degree because the war has rested on the fact that there's a level of indifference amongst Russians because they're trying to kind of keep the war at a distance. And that was the promise that Putin gave at the beginning of the war, saying, look, this will not disrupt your ordinary life. Just let me do this. And this is the right thing to do. And now this is kind of, that kind of pledge is being broken. Yeah. How does, what does that mean for ordinary Russians? We know that they've been misinformed about the war. We know that many Russians support the war. Does a thing like this, all of a sudden we've got drones bombing our capital, does a thing like this change the minds of regular people? At least some people are are asking questions about how did how did this happen because mm. they were sold the idea that this is going to be a really quick victorious war at the very beginning and now we're fifteen months in and instead of you know whatever taking Kiev as a lot of Russian pundits have been uh, seeing at the very beginning we have drones striking a different capital the Russian capital. I don't even know. It's scary. You sit at home and this thing flies at your window. It's dangerous. That's what I read in the news. Just the fact that the military action and the peace is being disrupted so close to home is, I guess, undermines this narrative that the Kremlin has been trying to sell for many, many months. And, you know, we know that Belgrade and other border regions have been living with this for a very long time. But for the majority of the country, that was something that happened so, so far away. And if you don't have relatives or friends there, you might not even really hear about it. But Moscow is a kind of different story. Okay, Russia blames Ukraine. Vladimir Putin says Ukraine is doing this. What does Ukraine say in response? We don't attack Putin or Moscow. We fight on on our territory. We are defending our villages and cities. Well, Ukraine is not claiming any direct involvement in this. They have been quite vague in general about claiming any responsibility for attacks that happened within Russian territory because of the tension with the United States as well. The advisor to President Zelensky, uh, Mihailo Podolak, said, of course, Ukraine wants kind of to feel Russians what the Ukrainians have been feeling for a very long time. But he said Ukraine is not directly connected to these attacks. But he did note an interesting thing about the kind of underground resistance movements within Russia and guerrilla groups, because Ukraine is now saying that Ukraine has provided enormous opportunities for them to show themselves, for these groups to take action against Vladimir Putin. And he's kind of hinting that this is their doing. But of course, we don't exactly know. Mary, for months now, we've been hearing that Ukraine is preparing a counteroffensive, right? Ukraine has been on the defensive, on its back foot, but we've been told that's not the end of things. Is this the counteroffensive? Is that what we're seeing now? I think the consensus is that this is kind of setting the stage for the counteroffensive. 
they will, you know, hit targets uh, and try to push um, the Russian forces back to the kind of pre-2014 borders and so on and so forth. But it could be a part of it because it's not only action on the front line, but it's also kind of psychological pressure and attack because what the Ukrainian officials have also said is that this kind of creates this alarmist situation within Russia. And the whole idea is that if Vladimir Putin continues with the war, he'll have to fight it kind of on both fronts, both in Ukraine and at home with whatever guerrilla groups, with people being alarmed by drone attacks. So this could be just a way to project force and ensure that the Russian authorities understand that Ukraine has a lot of capabilities that could hurt Russian narratives at home about this war. It's Mary Lucina of The Washington Post. Coming up next, what does the counteroffensive look like on the front line? Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from NetSuite. I've never worked in media before, and it's really fun to see deals come through, especially when we signed with MKBHD and the Waveform podcast. That was one of my favorite shows on YouTube, and I've loved that we've partnered with him. I'm Christina Ho-Rodriguez, and I am a senior manager of revenue accounting at Vox Media. At Vox, I'm not so siloed in my own revenue accounting department. I'm getting to see the big picture of, of what the company is working on. In my first year, the company went through a really big merger with another media company, and we switched from our old ERP system to NetSuite. We had to integrate NetSuite really fast. It was very user-friendly right out of the box. Over the last couple months, our team developed a new revenue reporting module that makes our reporting much faster, much more automated. I have a lot of hope with what we can do in the future with NetSuite so that we're able to optimize, make our team a lot more successful, and improve our processes. We're only as good as our best data, and NetSuite allows us to see it all. Discover the power of NetSuite, a leading cloud financial system serving more than 37,000 businesses. Download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com explained. That's netsuite.com explained to get your own KPI checklist. Support for Today Explained comes from Shopify. If medieval individuals had access to the internet, at least one of them would figure out the benefits of e-commerce, and the rest might shun them for witchcraft. <laughs> Luckily, the year is 2024, and anyone can actually make a living selling stuff online. You can start your own ye old online shop with Shopify, you can sign up for a $1 month trial period at shopify.com explained. It's all lowercase. You can go to shopify.com explained now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com explained. Businesses that grow, grow with ye old Shopify. Deal with it. (laughs) 
It's Today Explained. Luke Harding of The Guardian has been covering the Ukraine war since it started in February last year. Luke's been on with us before. I reached him yesterday in London. He is just back from his latest trip to Kiev. I spent a long time on the front line, talked to various Ukrainian commanders, and they say, actually, counteroffensive isn't quite the right word. They talk instead about um, a sort of rolling spring summer campaign. And I think that campaign absolutely is underway. We've seen lots of what you might call tactical operations on the front line, vast front line, about 900 miles long, stretching from the east of Ukraine all the way down through the south towards Crimea. And that has involved smashing up Russian tanks, armoured vehicles, bombing using drones, oil refineries, weapon stumps, and so on. And also, we've seen most dramatically, as you say, these drone attacks on Moscow, which I think really are, are an attempt to kind of spook and confuse the enemy. I'm thinking about the original Russian invasion and the tactics that Russia used, which was like send in all the tanks and then the tanks got bogged down and Ukraine actually um, ended up in, in a stronger position than expected. What will the tactics be of Ukraine's counteroffensive? Will it look like Russia's? Should we expect long lines of tanks, etc.? I think it's going to be smarter than that. Basically, the Russians launched these massive, almost sort of Second World War-style attacks from Belarus last spring, from sweeping up from Crimea, as if they were trying to kind of reenact the storming of Berlin. And that, that didn't work. The, the attempt to seize Kiev was abandoned. This morning, Ukraine's flag back over the Chernobyl nuclear power plant weeks after the facility was captured by Russian forces. And new satellite images show Russia's military abandoning a strategic airport outside of Kyiv, which they captured on the first day of this invasion. Ukraine is currently getting more military aid, more in the way of tech from Russian forces who are just abandoning their tanks, abandoning their missile systems than they are from any Western countries. And what the Ukrainians have done Ukrainians, by the way, being uh, kind of vastly outnumbered by Russian soldiers and military equipment, is they've been fighting smart. And look, we don't know what precisely the shape the counteroffensive will take. It's it's a secret. Very very few people know. I'm I'm, I'm not even sure that that, that President Biden knows the full details. Mm. But what I imagine is it'll be nimbler, and it will take place in several and several sort of battlefields. So it won't just be one push in one direction. It'll be multiple pushes in multiple directions, trying to break the line and to push the Russians out. Okay, so yes, brings up an important question. Is Ukraine only trying to recapture territory that Russia has taken, or is Ukraine trying to take parts of Russia? I know that sounds like a deranged question, but we haven't really heard specifics. No, I mean, I mean, there's no attempt to take parts of Russia proper, the Russian Federation. I mean, there was an incursion recently by Russian sort of, uh, I suppose you could call them separatists or, or partisans who are opposed to Vladimir Putin and trying to overthrow him, who, who mounted an incursion into the Russian Federation and took a few villages briefly in, in Belgorod, near, around the town of Belgorod. But that, that wasn't a sort of a, a substantial attempt to seize Russian territory. What the government of Vladimir Zelensky wants to do is kick the Russians out of all territory that they've occupied, mm. including since 2014. So that means Crimea, taking back the Crimean Peninsula, and it means the key cities in the east of Donetsk and Luhansk. But I, I think to begin with, they will push in the south and try and take back areas of Zaporizhia Oblast or region and Kherson region, which were seized by the Russian military in, in the first sort of confusing days of invasion in, in February and March of last year. That's the number one target. <laughs> 
Why is Ukraine uh, mounting the counteroffensive now? It is late May, early June. What's significant about the timing? Well, it's partly the weather. I, I mean, the thing is, the battle has been going on furiously for well over a year. I mean, the Russians are pounding Kiev. I've just come from Kiev every night with mm. hypersonic missiles, with, with drones. So this has never been a quiet war. But the fact is that the dry weather makes it easier for the Ukrainians to advance, particularly in the south, which is this vast, rolling, flat territory of steppe, where if there's mud, if there's winter mud, it's much, much, much harder. And the commanders I'm in touch with, they're talking about a window of about three or four months from now, beginning of June, through to about the end of September. That is the opportunity that Ukraine has to do something. You mentioned earlier that President Biden himself might not know the details of the counteroffensive. One thing that is notable here is that we have known that a counteroffensive is coming because Ukraine has been saying a counteroffensive is coming. One of my colleagues um, who served in the military mentioned D-Day the other day in a meeting. And she said, you know, it was the element of surprise, obviously, that made D-Day work so well. Why didn't Ukraine try for the element of surprise here. Why did it feel it needed to talk about a counteroffensive happening? I mean, partly because actually much harder for, for the Ukrainians to surprise the Russians now. We had two successful Ukrainian counteroffensives last autumn. Uh, one in uh, Kherson in the south, the city of Kher- occupied city of Kherson, which was recaptured in autumn, um, which actually Zelensky did talk about. But the other offensive in the northeast, in Kharkiv Oblast, which was a complete surprise to everybody, and saw the Russians retreating in disarray very quickly. Now, this time round, it's not possible to kind of repeat that exercise because everybody knows where the Ukrainians need to push, which is uh, Zaporizhia Oblast. They need to kind of break the land corridor connecting the sort of Russian occupation zones in the east of the country, in the Donbass region, with Crimea and and, uh, Kherson in the west of the country. So if they can smash through to the Sea of Azov, that will be a kind of stunning Ukrainian victory. So we know the the blow is going to fall there. I think what the Ukrainians are trying to do is to sort of play psychological games with the Russians to make the Russians twitchy and nervous and fearful and to weaken them. Is Russia ready for this? Well, I mean, yes and no. From from a military point of view, I think they are ready. I mean, they've they been digging some of the biggest trenches we, we've seen on the planet for, for decades. There are vast fortifications all across the south and in Crimea proper. Furthest from the front line, you have artillery positions, then a trench network for soldiers, then what are called dragon's teeth. These are concrete obstacles designed to stop tanks in their tracks. We're talking about anti-tank ditches, which are five metres across, um, three metres deep. We're talking about minefields that have been have been placed to try and stop the Ukrainians from, from rolling forward. But I, I think the problem is is more almost more mental than, than military, which is that it's still not clear to me, and I think to many Russians, what would Russian victory look like? We don't quite understand what the Russians are, are now trying to do, other than to hang on to the territory that, that they've already stolen. And, and there are also issues of kind of morale and training and the fact that Russian casualties in this brutal war in the east around Bakhmut have been, have been so huge. So many young men have, have been lost and perished quite often in kind of disastrous sort of forward movements. So I think my sense is the Russian army is more brittle than it seems. And it'll be interesting to see what happens when it's given a kind of mighty push. Mm-hmm. 
we do know that President Zelensky has been spending a lot of time with leaders of Western governments working to convince them to send aid and weapons. How much will will Western aid, Western weapons come into play during this counteroffensive? I mean, they're already coming into into play. Since June, the U.S. has shipped Ukraine 16 HIMARS launchers and thousands of rockets, which defense officials say the Ukrainians have used to attack more than 350 Russian command posts, ammo dumps, supply depots, and other high-value targets far back from the front lines. I mean, when, when I was there recently, the, the Brits, you know, my country, started supplying what are called storm shadow missiles. This is essentially long-range artillery. And we, we suddenly saw Ukraine hitting targets well beyond the front line in cities like Luhansk, next to occupied cities next to the Russian border, and just grinding, grinding away at kind of Russian supply networks. These guns are making all the difference, says Dimitro, the unit commander. We can now hit the Russians more accurately and further away, which means they can only attack us half or a third as often as before. And here's Meanwhile, we have a whole load of new or newish uh, European tanks, leopards and so on. And we've got 12 newly formed Ukrainian brigades armed with kind of modern Western equipment. Now, Kiev says, give us more, give us more. This is not enough. But, but I think that these... Um, this equipment at least gives Ukraine a reasonable chance of success this summer in its counteroffensive. I wonder if we could pull back for a minute and talk about the stakes here. Russia invaded Ukraine. Russia is the aggressor. Russia is the bad guy. What happens if this counteroffensive is successful? Does that mean Ukraine has won the war? And what happens if it fails? Does that mean this goes on forever? Yes, these are really, really interesting questions. I, I mean, I think if the Ukrainians are successful, and I would define success as getting back some of the south, at least one major city, maybe Melitopol or the port of Berdyansk on the Sea of Azov, then Ukraine is showing to its own domestic population, but also to its international partners, that it has regained the strategic initiative, that it can win this war, that it can defeat mighty Russia, that all, all of those billions in military and security assistance is money well spent. And, and that actually the this coalition led by the US of Western democracies, Western partners should continue to support them. But conversely, if the counteroffensive falls short, and actually there are, there are very big Ukrainian casualties, the Russians hang on, the Ukrainians liberate a few villages and that's it, then uh, I think that's politically very problematic for, for Kiev and maybe even dangerous because there'll be those in perhaps not so much London, but in other countries, Berlin, uh, I'm thinking of, and, and, and Paris, and also, of course, you know, factions, elements within the Republican Party who are saying, look, the Ukrainians can't win. We need some kind of deal with Vladimir Putin. And the Ukrainians are going to have to give up territory in exchange for peace. Now, first of all, that's not going to work because the Ukrainians think, and I agree with them, that Putin will just, just use any peace deal to have a break and then, and then attack again. But secondly, Ukrainians don't want that. They've, they've lost so many people, so many soldiers, so many civilians, 500 kids killed. Their mood is vehement and uncompromising, and they want, they want victory at any price. Luke Harding of The Guardian, he's also the author of Invasion, Russia's Bloody War and Ukraine's Fight for Survival. Luke, thank you so much for taking the time today. Noel, thank you very much. Really good to talk to you. Today's show was produced by Amanda Llewellyn. 
It was edited by Matthew Collette and fact-checked by Laura Bullard, who's been with us for two to five years. Michael Rayfield engineered today's show. I'm Noelle King. It's Today Explained. Support for Today Explained comes from Mint Mobile. Right now, Mint Mobile is offering plans that include unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data delivered on the country's biggest 5G network, all for $15 a month. You can get your new wireless plan for just $15 a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free by going to mintmobile.com explained. That's mintmobile.com explained. You can cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com explained. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions do apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.